I'm a data scientist by training. Um, used to run data science monetization at Foursquare. And before that, I uh, was the first data scientist in residence at Andreessen Horowitz. Um, but uh, I, the company I now run is the Data Incubator, which I founded. It's a Cornell Tech-backed data science education company. And we have offices in New York, D.C., and SF. We do data science training for corporates who are looking to have a customized in-house data science training offering. And we also help companies with their data science hiring. My role at AIG, Michael, was about fundamentally helping reshape the role of human and machine intelligence in decision-making across sales, underwriting, and claims. So in that capacity, I had the privilege of building what is among the first few C-suite data science functions at a mature large firm spanning, spanning the globe. Here at uh, BCG, at the Boston Consulting Group, uh, I'm working with, in particular with the insurance practice, but generally across industries with the specific intent of building some IP in the space of analytics as a service. And if you think about the traditional construct of many of the high-end strategy consulting firms, they tend to be much more oriented toward uh, defined engagements that are time-bound and more people-intensive. My aspiration in joining BCG is to help them develop some intellectual property through analytics as a service. I think we need to start this conversation with some background about the insurance industry to give us context uh, around how data science is used. So maybe, Murli, uh, share with us about the insurance industry and what do we need to know in the context of data science? Certainly. The, the core challenge for the insurance sector is similar to some of financial services in insurance. You're trying to predict your cost of goods sold at the point of sale. So getting that right is absolutely critical in your ability to achieve margins down the road. And so anything and everything that you can do to understand that at its core will give you a significant competitive advantage. Now, if you zoom out from that problem statement, in general, there's many similarities in insurance and other industries around the role of data science and machine learning in augmenting human intelligence in making better decisions, more structured, granular, sophisticated, consistent decisions in sales and marketing, as well as in pricing and underwriting and in claims, which is a significant part of the fulfillment of the promise that insurance carriers make to their customers. You know, what we, are, what we call data science today is really part of a long history of the application of mathematics and computing to industry, right? So when I joined the industry uh, and I started uh, my world in finance at Wall Street, and back then we used to call, call these jobs quant roles, uh, and you would, you know, figure out how to trade in capital markets, make predictions about which way the stock price would move. And I think what we've seen is that the tools and the technologies that have been used there were then sort of really adopted in Silicon Valley, really turbocharged, uh, frankly, made actually much more usable. And then um, the cost of computing made it so that you could apply this not just to a few select problems on Wall Street, but all over Main Street, all over the rest of the financial services industry. Really, uh, so if we zoom out, as Michael was just describing, can you talk about some of the similarities between data science in the insurance industry and, and other non-insurance data science applications as well, since it seems there are a lot of commonalities there? 
Most certainly. The first big uh, dissimilarity, so to speak, about in, 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 when comparing insurance to other sectors is that the role of the actuarial profession dates back to the early days when insurance was actually created as a sector. So the role of analytics in insurance has largely been driven by the actuarial function, which brings a certain set of nuanced competencies and capabilities that are relevant to insurance. The challenge has been that if you were to think about the broader role that data science could play, in particular in the world that we live in today in insurance, you can actually fundamentally reshape human judgment when it comes to sales, when it comes to underwriting judgment, and even when it comes to claims through the lens of data and technology in ways that might not have been feasible 10, 12, 15 years ago. The similarity lies in the fact that much like many other sectors, in insurance, you've got a sales or distribution channel. You've got a product uh, product channel that is around pricing the product. Some of that is around your cost of goods sold, and some of that is trying to understand the market's appetite and the customer's demand, so to speak, or demand elasticity, if you would. And last but not the least, you've got the fulfillment of that promise that you've made that is very, very data-rich. So to if you, if you break down that value chain to its core elements, there are similarities to other sectors. Now, the difference could be that if you think about healthcare, for instance, healthcare is much more of a transaction data-rich industry, perhaps compared to insurance, because you're engaging with the customers on a very consistent basis, just as you are in financial services in banking and credit cards and such. So the difference perhaps between insurance and these other sectors is while certainly getting your cost of goods sold right early on is absolutely critical, you're not necessarily as data rich as transaction data rich as some other sectors are. Right. But you see this with retail. Um, you see this, uh, you know, through through the smartphone. And we were doing a lot of that when I was at Foursquare, trying to make that retail brick and mortar experience a bit more digital through your smartphone. Um, and you see this all over the place. Uh, and I think that that's going to be a major driver um, of sort of a lot of consumer electronics that you're going to see coming up is the need for companies to have data is going to drive a lot of those interactions onto smartphones, tablets, wearables. And, and, and to, to build on what you just said, Michael, if you were to contextualize that to insurance, where I see the big leap in innovation happening in the next two to three years is around this notion of making much more granular real-time decisions on the basis of machine learning and by really defining data, not just in the traditional internal structured terms, but thinking of it in four quadrants, internal and external on one dimension and structured and unstructured on the other dimension. And the ability to build machine learning algorithms on some of these platforms will reshape what humans do in terms of decision-making and judgment and where models harmonize or balance human judgment with machine intelligence. And the way I would frame it is oftentimes people think of it as an either or, but if you were to uh, re-paraphrase re sort of machine intelligence as nothing but the collective experience of the institution manifested through some data, what it does is brings more consistency and granularity to decision-making that's not to say that it would obviate the role of human judgment completely, 
but it is to say that that balance, that harmony should and will look dramatically different two years, three years from now than it has for the last decade and before that. The next big step change that I see for the sector as a whole is evolving from a predictor of risk to an actual risk partner that can actually mitigate outcomes through the power of real-time insights. The most obvious example of that is the role that sensors can play in in providing real-time feedback to drivers of vehicles in a way that hopefully reduces uh, reduces, uh, risky driving and mitigates the likelihood of accidents. And to me, that is the true power of data science in the ro- in, in, in insurance. And the beauty of that is not only does it mitigate uh, accidents from happening uh, but or adverse events from happening, but what it does in doing so is reduces the cost of insurance and expands the reach of insurance to a much broader population, both in the developed and developing world. And to me, that's a beautiful thing if you if you think about society having a much higher level of financial protection across every aspect of our lives. If we think about what's new in data science, that is, why is data science different from, or what, how does data science expand upon things like the actuarial tradition, like statisticians, um, the quants of yore? I think it really does kind of come down to this idea that, one, we're using uh, not just structured data, so it's not just SQL queries anymore, uh, but it's semi-structured and unstructured data. Um, and how do you start handling things when they don't come in nice tables that you can load into Excel or that you can put into SQL, right? Um, that, that we are also in a world where data is much larger, right? You mentioned telematics. If you're taking a reading off of every car um, every second, that's a lot of numbers you got to store. And that's a lot, that's a very different paradigm for computation. Um, and you start having to think about what, what, how do you store this data? How do you deal with data now that's stored across multiple computers? How do you think about computation in that context? And then, of course, the last thing is always this idea around sort of real-time data, right? I think that analytics has historically been, uh, you might call it kind of a batch process. Run it once, generate a report, show it to people, you're done. Now it's a continuous process. You run it, you have to instantly uh, find the latest trends, put that into uh, production so that you can you know, adapt to that in an, in an intelligent way, and then do that again the next hour, the next minute. Uh, and that's kind of where competition is driving you, right? And if you look at sort of what um, Silicon Valley has been doing, uh, it is very much, you know, your server is constantly learning from user behavior and then able to adjust how it interacts with users in a way that, to borrow their expression, delights the user. Uh, and I think that we're sort of seeing that uh, traditional companies, that is non-tech-based sort of companies, are having to kind of emulate that kind of level of customer service and satisfaction. Uh, and I think a lot of that comes down to sort of big data and being able to have a team that's capable of understanding how to manipulate this new type of data uh, faster, more data, uh, different kinds of data in a, world, in a world that's rapidly evolving. That's right, Michael. If you, if you think about the historic definition of transactional data in healthcare and banking, we know that that's been at the core of how they think about analytics for, for quite a while now. Uh, traditionally, most of uh, insurance has not had that version, but if you were to zoom out and define data in a much broader sense that includes images, that includes audio, that includes all sorts of unstructured data, 
Now, insurance has its own version layered on top with IoT and such. Insurance has its own version of transactional data. So the ability to harness that and dramatically change the cycle time of decision making, as well as the granularity of decision making, is, is, is where the gold mine is for insurance in the coming five years or so. Oh, I was going to say, no, that's right. Um, just to give you one example, you know, we work with a, a large consumer bank, both for the, on the trading side and to help them hire uh, their data science talent. And one of the really cool applications they've been able to develop is uh, around merging the data that they get from multiple channels. So from their web, from their mobile, um, from tablets, uh, from even in-store visits. Uh, and phone calls to customer service, right? Uh, so bring all that data together um, so that their customer service representatives can uh, see that in a one clear, simple visualization. So they know that when a customer calls in, they can sort of, they instantly get this information and then they know that they've had been having trouble opening a checking account. So they can sort of directly target the question that the customer would like and then solve that information, that problem for them. And that's even to the point where if the customer has been, you know, browsing around trying to get the answer to a question, uh, that question, the answer might actually just be populated from their knowledge base straight onto their screen so that they don't have to have this awkward process of asking the customer for the question, then sort of slowly searching for them for it for themselves. Uh, but the customer service rep is able just to sort of see that and answer the question right away. And that creates a much more uh, pleasant customer experience. It certainly makes the uh, customer service reps at the bank seem far more knowledgeable, right? Uh, and I think that that's, you know, just one example of how you can have so much more data in something where, you know, none of that, that I just talked about was the traditional data of transactions uh, and, you know, moving money uh, in and out of your bank account, right? This is all a new type of data uh, and from new sources that uh, we're talking about. Merle, we have a an interesting comment from Arsalan Khan on Twitter who's asking about the question of bias. Because of course, sensors have no bias, but when creating models and selecting data, people do. So how do we deal with that issue? All models are incorrect, some are useful. And so the question to me is not about whether the model is perfection personified, but rather how much of an improvement is it relative to the status quo? And what I've seen very consistently in the sectors that I've been exposed to in, in my career is that if you were to use that litmus test, models are vastly superior to the, uh, the judgment-oriented decision-making that occurs certainly in a good chunk of the insurance value chain today, but also in other, uh, other sectors too. And so what we've got to teach ourselves is to not be naive to the data gods and assume that the models are perfection personified to understand where they're prone to bias or error, but also to realize that uh, when we, if we were to hold human judgment to the same standards of a bias and objectivity that we'd like to hold models to, it would not be a competition at, in, 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 at any level whatsoever. So the question isn't to me whether the model is biased or not, because models do have an inherent bias because they tend to be biased by historical experiences. But to ask the question where and when and to what extent are they biased? And the even more important question is how much of a step change are they from the caliber of a decision making that 
is is the, is the current status quo in in that particular part of the value chain. We often sort of end up wanting to criticize models uh, for their imperfections in a way that we may not hold up the same scrutiny to uh, say human judgment. Um, you know, there was a famous article that just came out in the last few months about. Um, how neural nets that were being trained on large corpuses of human texts were inherently sexist. All right. They would say, uh, things, you know, they would have gender associations with, for example, uh, occupations, uh, or perhaps certain derogatory phrases that, you know, uh, we might really cringe at. And I think that that's, uh, you know, that's comes down to being really a, you know, the models are being a mirror, right? They are holding up to society uh, the data that we're feeding into them, and they start sort of showing it back to us. And I and that's not just sort of you know an idle philosophical point. I think it's a very real point that um, you know when, for example, we're in, in an industry that's highly regulated like finance, there are lots of uh, laws around uh, equal opportunity for lending, right? You have you cannot uh, lend, uh, you you can't make judgments. Um, that are sort of disproportionately, uh, you know, negatively impact uh, people of a certain race uh, or sex or various other protected categories. And I think that that's one of those places where, you know, we have to be careful as we sort of train these models that they haven't then picked up some of the biases that may be inherent in society that we don't want to keep. Uh, and I think that that's part of the reason why uh, I don't really buy this whole uh scare mongering that these computers will take over all of our jobs because in the end there is sort of this human judgment that comes in where we sort of say well okay that model probably did learn something about our society and we would rather that not exist and so we're going to kind of tweak that a little bit and find ways to mitigate those effects Merle, uh so this issue of bias when you're inside an organization like an insurance company, what are the practical implications of that, and how do you how do you ensure that that the model is as fair as possible and that it doesn't embody preconceived bias? Even recognizing what you were just saying that the, that the question is comparing to what the human would do, it's still something that you I'm sure you have to be concerned about. Most certainly. I, I think the imperative is to go into this process and effort with eyes wide open. I'll give you a classic example of what you just described. Oftentimes, historically, whether it's in insurance or even in financial services, healthcare and credit cards and such, uh, the ability to detect, sniff out uh, fraudulent activity has typically dependent on, dependent on human judgment. And that's not to say that the human judgment isn't valuable. It's extremely valuable. However, when you then try to augment that human intelligence with machine intelligence, effectively what you are doing is actually uh, sort of propagating a little bit of the historic bias that the human judgment has had because you're using historic data to be able to, uh, to, be able to predict future fraud based on human judgment in the past. So the way to break that cycle is twofold. Frankly, um, when, when you do use algorithms, it'll, it'll tease out noise and human judgment. And the beauty of noise and human judgment is that it truly is 
noise and it's very inconsistent. And models have that ability to overcome that inconsistency in judgment in the past, which is actually a very good thing. The second thing that I would do in that particular instance, and there's many other uh, analogies to this, is also be very purposeful in creating a particular random sample that sort of stretches the range of the predictions of some of these models that allows you to go to the periphery and assess how well the models are or are not working based on their predictions so that you create a virtual virtuous cycle where you're actually challenging the assumptions of your models and you've got some human beings at the other end of that spectrum coming up with their own judgment and, and throwing out the gauntlet to create a feedback loop that'll allow the models to get better because they're invariably going to miss insights that human beings might have. How you choose your sample size, uh, your sample, right, um, is really, really important for this, uh, for data. Um, and, you know, just to cite an example from my old field uh, of being a quant, uh, I think we all sort of know about the 2008 financial crisis and how if you train a bunch of models on the bull years, that those models may not apply very well in a situation uh, that's a bear year, right? Uh, so you have to be very careful to realize that just because the last 5, 10, 15 years of macroeconomic data have been bullish doesn't mean that next year's will be. And you have to really think about how do I stress test my model? How do I sort of give it examples that um, may not, may be sort of things I expect will happen even if I haven't quite seen them in my data uh, or, or in the data set I've been training, how do you select that data set correctly so that you do find a representative um, uh, representative uh, elements uh, so that your data set uh, isn't horribly biased and therefore giving you a badly biased model? That's, that's right, Michael. And uh, I think the secret that you and I know quite well that perhaps is not more widely understood is that there's quite a bit of art in the science of data science. And, and that art is absolutely critical because the, the biggest risk is one of the blind leading the blind and the data scientists not really appreciating the context of the historic data and, and not having a basis in which they could test the efficacy of the predictions in a different environment than the one that the data was, the model was actually built on. So a classic example of that, in addition to the financial crisis in 2008, is the O-ring debacle with the Challenger uh, space shuttle, where you didn't actually test uh, the, 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 the effectiveness of the O-rings in a different temperature setting, and you ended up extrapolating. So I think the that that's really where the magic of human judgment and machine intelligence actually comes in. And so as important as the science of the data science is, the, the art of the data science is perhaps equally and sometimes even more critical depending on the consequences of your errors in prediction, whether they're false positives or false negatives. And that's really where understanding the context and making sure that you're asking the right questions and framing them appropriately and understand what data you have and what you don't have and how that could bias your understanding of the future is absolutely critical. Data science is very technical, incredibly, you know, lots of math, lots of programming. It's, uh, it's really far down the rabbit uh, hole of sort of technical 
stuff that you could be doing. But as a manager, it's still very important to understand it. And so in the, when we are talking to managers and we're training managers on how to do this, one of the things we have to really focus on is, well, um, you may not be able to understand the probabilities and the nuances perfectly, but you can understand what happens if you have a false positive or false negative, which way you're more willing to make a mistake. Right. And then use that to then set your thresholds and your comfort level about, okay, I'd rather have more of one type or the other. And it's, you know, and that, that even goes down to training, right? You can train models that are fo focused more on one type of error or another. But you, that the ultimate call about, you know, which way you want to go, that's a business decision. And, you know, and that's, a, that's why it's such an important lesson for business people to uh, know about this distinction between false positives and false negatives. That's right, Michael, which is why I get very excited about the notion of really pairing data scientists with economists or business analysts who can really sort of shape the context of how those models are built because you've got issues around stability and you've got issues around the standard deviation of some of your predictions and noise in your predictions perhaps being higher in certain segments. You've got issues around trade-offs that you make between false positives and false negatives. And depending on the context in which you operate, you value that dramatically differently. And if you do value that dramatically differently, that difference should actually be reflected in the art of the choices that you make in practicing data science. The art of understanding how do those priors, those assumptions that I'm making, how does that impact the data science? And how does that, those, the results that come out of these models, how does that then impact my business decision making, uh, my PNL, right? And I think that that kind of high level understanding is so important on the business side. But what about the, we were talking about the business side, what about the organizational issues? How do you introduce this type of thinking into an organization for which data science is relatively new? So I'll, I'll start with my perspective, Michael, and I'd be delighted to uh, for you to jump in as well, please. Um, is I don't think there's any obvious, easy answers. The challenge that I see today in most mature firms is you've got C-suite leaders that say, I'm doing data science, or I'm doing data, or I'm doing digital. There's my chief data officer. There's my chief digital officer. There's my chief analytics officer. And the, the, the way I would reframe that is to help them fundamentally recognize that this is not just a separate pillar that you should be thinking of as being incremental to how you will shape your business strategy. These competencies are in the very near future, or in fact, even in the here and now, in effect, the mitochondria that will shape the energy and the life that your firm will have in terms of its sustainability in a world of data and tech-driven disruption. The challenge then becomes is that typically in many of these large institutions, you've got leaders who've risen to those senior positions on the basis of historic experiences which are less relevant if you extrapolate them to the future. And so it really does become an issue around uh, having the humility to develop much more of a learning uh, mindset and recognizing that the more ambitious you are in terms of really re-sculpting and reshaping your competitive positioning, the more you have to be willing to break glass based on the insights that you achieve through 
data science. So it is very much of a leadership, courage of conviction issue. It's very much about uh, CXOs having a view on what legacy do they want to build in that organization and what is their courage of conviction and how do they shape the problems and questions that they would like to tackle through this competencies in a way that will fundamentally shape their sustenance in the medium and longer term. You need a broad organ the a broad swath of the organization to understand the value of data. How do you use data to think about some of the issues that you know Merle and I were just talking about earlier, um, and uh, that really embrace you know taking time to have their employees learn about uh, data science um, and big data. But on the cultural side, actually, I'd be curious, Merle, um, to ask you this question. So I think one of the things that's sort of maybe unique about insurance or banking is that there is a kind of a legacy of data around the actuarials, around the statisticians. And how does that sort of change the dynamic of uh, creating a data culture when you have sort of a legacy group that's, you know, somewhat already steeped in this? So I think there's uh, two parts to that, Michael. One is how does that change decision making today and how should that change uh, decision making tomorrow? And um, if, if one were to zoom out, I think in general, the actuarial function and the profession and the exams uh, have not embraced, and from my point of view, the power of data science in its totality the way perhaps they should, and maybe they will, looking into the coming, uh, coming few years. And as you move to that, or if we move to that, I think it obviates the need for having rigid titles such as an actuary or a data scientist, and it, uh, it, it infuses in the fundamental DNA of the organization a sense of curiosity and a comfort with challenging one's own assumptions and the ability to consistently ask the question, what do the data tell us and where could the data possibly mislead us, even if the models seem perfection personified. So that's one piece of it, I think. And the other piece of it is if you uh, if you disaggregate the entire value chain of insurance, there's data science that can be applied to many, many, many aspects of it that can fundamentally shape the sophistication, timeliness, granularity of decision-making in ways that the industry could not have imagined a decade ago. And so to me, the role of data science is uh, very, very widespread even if one were to dodge the traditional domain of the actuarial sciences, where I'm hoping the industry is going to head toward is rather than sort of have this mindset of creating rigid silos or pillars, see that the competencies are interchangeable and they're one and the same. And let's actually move to a world where we're challenging, where we understand our assumptions and are challenging those assumptions to shape the, the, the caliber, effectiveness, and efficiency of decision-making, as opposed to hanging our heads, hats on uh, what titles we've got, or what professional credentials we've got, or what academic experiences we have, because those are an interesting starting point, but are really sort of not particularly relevant in a world where 
everything around us is changing at a more profound pace than ever before. With the actuarials, I think that uh, a lot of the really sort of uh, far-sighted ones, the ones who are sort of really looking to the future, I think seem to really understand this uh, and are embracing a lot of these new techniques around data science, uh, around big data, um, really looking to challenge the assumptions that maybe their own discipline has ingrained into them through this, you know, uh, through indoctrination. Uh, and really leveraging the existing knowledge that they have, this really strong knowledge of probability and statistics, and then sort of seeing how they can apply that to uh, the, the data science, which, is, of course, is very rich in probability and stats. So much of this uh, falls into the general category of helping change an organization. Uh, are there aspects of this that are specific to the data science as opposed to general change issues? So the way I would uh, frame that, Michael, is data science is the engine that is uh, fundamentally reshaping practically every industry that we know about. And so um, that and, and, and the pace at which the aggregation of data is changing um, and the definition of data itself is so rapid today that it necessitates this discussion about the pace at which firms need to fundamentally question their paradigms on how they've made decisions historically. So yes, you're right, it's a broader sort of change management issue. And if the question is, why is this specific to data science and why isn't it broader? The answer is, it is broader, but the force of change that data and technology are imposing upon our society across sectors make this issue much, much more critical in the here and now than perhaps other forces of change might. You know, that pace of change is only going to accelerate. If you think about sort of a lot of the secular trends that are pushing data uh, into the forefront of, our, of this conversation, um, you know, those are things that are not going away, right? The falling cost of storage, the falling cost of being able to transmit data, the increasing rate of CPUs, uh, the greater on the social side, so the greater uh, demand by consumers to have sort of instant responses, uh, to be on their phones and interacting with their friends as well as companies in digital ways. I think that trend is not going away. It's only accelerating. And that's going to be forcing companies to move more and more in the direction of data. And I'll ask, uh, as we finish up, I'll ask each one of you, maybe I'll start with Merle, uh, what is your advice for organizations that want to adopt data science in, in a larger way? What, what should they do? Number one is uh, develop a sense of humility about yourselves and evolve from uh, what Carol Dweck would describe as a fixed mindset to a growth mindset, i.e., please recognize that the future is not an extrapolation of the past, certainly not at least a linear extrapolation of the past. And so the fundamental foundations on which you've made decisions and built your businesses are shifting today at a faster pace than ever before. So that requires you to develop as an organization, as individual professionals, that mental agility to question your assumptions um, and to challenge your traditional paradigms in which you've run your functions or businesses. So the first critical aspect of that is to develop that curiosity and ask questions around the art of the possible by drawing from learnings that you have around innovation across sectors and across fields. 
it kind of comes down to two basic first steps, right? First step, get the data, uh, collect it, you know, uh, store it, uh, what have you. Second step is find the talent that's necessary to uh, deal with the data, manipulate the data, uh, be able to come up with actionable uh, insights from that data. And if you can do both those things, um, then you know I think you will be have at least taken the first few steps in the direction of uh, building a data-driven culture. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This has been a very interesting show. We've been talking about the ins and outs of data science. And I want to thank our guests, Michael Lee, who is the CEO of the Data Incubator, and Merle Burleswar, who is the former science chief science officer at AIG and currently is working with Boston Consulting Group. Thanks so much, everybody. You've been watching episode number 259 of CXO Talk, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.